I'd like you to turn with me please to Luke's Gospel and chapter 22. Luke's Gospel and chapter 22. <clears throat> Verse 14 of Luke chapter 22. And when the hour was come, the Lord Jesus sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. We do trust that God will bless to us this familiar and very tender portion of his own good word. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus meeting in the upper room, and significantly Luke tells us that not with twelve disciples, but with twelve apostles. The difference simply being that the, the, as a disciple, they were followers. As apostles, they were going to be sent ones. And so the fact that the scene is set with the Lord and the apostles, though they did not know it, a very momentous change was taking place. The Lord Jesus had gathered with his own privately in that upper room to keep the Passover and to set in train the final hours of his own life. And in keeping the Passover he was of course looking back. That's what the Passover was for. It was a remembrance feast. It looked back to those great days recorded in Exodus chapter 12 when God uh, initiated the deliverance of his people out of Egyptian bondage and you will recall that the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage took place in two phases number one was recorded in Exodus chapter 12 and it was the means by which the nation knew what it was to be individually redeemed in that uh, promised judgment that would come upon the firstborn of the land. Had it not been for the blood shed and the blood applied of the lamb that died, then the firstborn of Israel would have died as surely as the firstborn of Egypt. God made that wonderful provision in Exodus chapter 12, and, and, and we learn this great principle from that chapter, that though there must have been that night some five 
hundred thousand, maybe half a million lambs slain. God always spoke of, the, of those lambs in the singular. Thou shalt take it and slay it. The lamb. So, though there were half a million separate different lambs, I'm using a round figure, you know, it would be something plus or minus that. But a vast number of different beasts, yet in the sight of God, he saw Christ. He saw one lamb. And the fact that the blood was shed, and shed in the threshold of the door, that's really the thought of the bull. The blood being caught in the bull. That word bull is the word used in the Hebrew language in Ezekiel's prophecy, for example, for the threshold of the door as the glory was leaving the temple. It hovered over the threshold of the door. So within the threshold of the door, the blood was shed. And we learn this great principle that blood that is shed is to satisfy God. Shed blood for the satisfaction of God. When I see the blood... I will pass over, literally I will hover over you. It was then necessary, of course, for the blood that was shed to then be applied. And that blood being applied by faith, it made no human sense. There was no human rationale or logic behind the whole proceedings. But God simply said, now you take hyssop, and you take the blood that's in the threshold, and you apply it to the doorposts and the lintel. And faith did that. Faith laid hold on the word of God. And so the blood shed, once applied, afforded the salvation. What a clear gospel principle that is, isn't it? And the fact that the Lord Jesus, the Lamb, would ultimately give his life there at Calvary, and that blood, precious blood, would be shed. The shedding of blood by itself doesn't bring salvation to man. The shedding of blood brings satisfaction to God. And it satisfies the claims of God. And God uh, sees that blood, propitiation has been made, and it means that salvation is available for all, but until and unless the blood that is shed is applied by faith, it is of no efficacy at all to the individual. Very important principles laid down there in Exodus chapter 12. The principle of substitution is there. The firstborn who would feed upon that lamb would see that this lamb had died in his place. It had died instead of him. Did God's justice and righteousness demand that death visit every home in Egypt? Yes. And death did visit every home in Egypt. In the home of the Egyptians, the firstborn died. In the home of the Israelites, the lamb died. It was a substitutionary death. The propitiatory work of Christ is that aspect of his work at Calvary, which means that we can preach the gospel to the whosoever. There is salvation freely available for all sinners. But only those who appropriate that work by faith will be able to say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Propitiation on the one hand, substitution on the other. But then, of course, once the great night of Passover had taken place and the light of a new day dawned, though they had been delivered out from under the judgment of God, where were they? They were still in Egypt. 
Pharaoh was still their master. They were still in the land of bondage. So in chapter 14 of Exodus, we find now not deliverance from under the judgment of God, but deliverance from the land of Egypt itself. And through the Red Sea, God took them by mighty power, and he separated them unto himself on the other side of the Red Sea. We learn this. That Exodus chapter 12 is a picture of the death of Christ for me. My substitute. The fact that Christ died for me means that I'm delivered from the judgment of God. But in going through the Red Sea, that is a picture not of Christ's death for me, but of my death with Christ. This is Romans chapter 6. And I, having died with Christ, I have been delivered from the power of sin as a master. So Exodus 12 is the picture of how sin's penalty has been dealt with, and Exodus 14 is the picture of how sin's power is dealt with. How I'm delivered from judgment, and how I'm also delivered from the dominion of sin. Christ has died for me, and I have died with Christ. And indeed, 1 Corinthians 10 says of the nation of Israel that they were baptized unto Moses in the sea and in the cloud. It was, it was as though a physical and literal baptism had taken place. They were utterly surrounded either by the waters of the Red Sea or by the cloud that guided them. And they were baptized unto Moses. Well, by the same figure, we're taught in the New Testament scriptures that our baptism as believers identifies us as those who have died with Christ and have been buried with Christ and have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life so as the Lord met with the uh, apostles in the upper room it was very clearly to look back it was to look back to that time of national and individual redemption time to look back to when these people were separated unto their God but though this was a time for looking back you'll have noticed as we read together that the Lord Jesus was also looking forward so he says to his uh, apostles with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I say unto you I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God so you might say well Surely the Passover was going to be fulfilled in the death of Christ. Well, <clears throat> in regard to the sacrifice of the Lamb, yes. But you know, the things that the Passover commemorated were not an end in themselves. What I mean is this. The Passover commemorated the bringing out of the nation from under judgment and from out of bondage. The, the Passover commemorated deliverance out from. But it didn't have anything to do with going in. But God had brought them out in order that he might bring them in to something better. The purpose of God bringing them out of Egypt was that they might go in to the, into Canaan, into that promised land, into their inheritance. And that's always God's way. He will bring his people out of something that he might bring them in to something better. So the Passover was not an end in itself. It was the beginning of a process. It was the beginning of a process of redemption. 
So now you and I as Christians today, we can say on the one hand, with the hymn writer, I am redeemed, oh praise the Lord. And we have known redemption from sin's power, we've known redemption from divine judgment, and yet a process has begun. Because when I read Romans chapter 8, I find that the whole creation is groaning and travailing together. And what's it doing? It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's waiting until our redemption is complete. God brought us out from under judgment and he brought us out of the dominion of Satan in order that we might be brought in to something far better. And though it's true we're seated today in the heavenlies with Christ and though it's true we are enjoying, as it were, <coughs> Canaan rest just as, as uh, Israel had to go in and fight to possess the land the Ephesian epistle teaches me spiritually we have to do the same. God's purpose in your salvation and mine was not simply that he might, or not only, that he might deliver us from divine judgment and that he might deliver us from sin's bondage, but ultimately, ultimately, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. Ultimately, so that heaven would be populated with millions who are just like Christ. So God has brought us out with a view ultimately to taking us in. So in that respect, you see, though the Passover feast that the Jews kept and the Lord was keeping here, though that looked back, it looked back to the beginning of a process, not to the end of it. But here the Lord is looking at the end of the process as well. He says the Passover isn't going to be fulfilled until the kingdom of God has come. And he was looking even beyond the church age. He was looking to a day, still future, when after we've been taken home to heaven, the nation of Israel, through the means of that awful tribulation through which they will pass, the nation of Israel will be brought to its knees in repentance, and restored, and repentant, and given a new heart. Then God, who brought them out as a nation, in Exodus chapter 12 and 14, will ultimately, ultimately bring them in. The Lord is looking forward to that then. I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled. He says of the cup as he gave it to them. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So whether the Lord Jesus participated in this Passover or not, you can tell me afterwards if, if, if I'm misunderstanding this, but but I think it's not clear that he actually did take part in this himself. He gave to them. And he's saying, I'm not going to eat or drink until it's in the kingdom. But you know, it was mentioned in the conference weekend from Genesis 14, how that bread and wine, Melchizedek came forth bearing bread and wine, a wonderful picture of fellowship. So what grace there was in the words of the Lord Jesus that, that on the eve of his betrayal and his crucifixion he's looking forward to the day when he will sit with the very nation that has rejected him and is about to crucify him and he's looking forward to the day when he will sit with them with bread and with wine. You can see why the scripture says Isaiah and other prophets speak of it for example of the... Um, of the swords being beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. The plowshares to get the corn for the bread. 
the pruning hooks to trim the vines for the wine. The prophets, through the Spirit, were also looking forward to a glorious day of Israel's restoration when they sit in fellowship with their God. So the Lord is looking back with the, with the apostles, yes, but he's also looking forward. And he's looking forward to the day when the sequence that began with the Passover will be complete. This morning in Thanksgiving, a dear brother uh, mentioned things concerning the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. And you know how that in the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus, he appeared on the mount and, and there were two men with him, twice over, Luke tells us they were two men, Moses and Elijah. doesn't say that Moses was a phantom, it says he was a man. So you know for that remarkable occasion when Peter, James and John went into the mount to see the Lord transfigured, Moses was raised from the dead for that stood there as a man he had died Mount Nebo, God had buried him and this will explain Jude's epistle won't it where Jude speaks about the fact that that when Michael and Satan had an altercation concerning the body of Moses Michael says to Satan the Lord rebuked thee you see it's the context of not bringing railing accusations against against authorities and, and things like this but we have that fascinating little glimpse in Jude's epistle that there had evidently been in the spirit realm an altercation about the body of Moses not about his burial there was no argument about that God buried him it would have been about his resurrection Satan saying how can this man claim the benefits of redemption when redemption has not yet taken place and the one who had been sent to bring him from where God buried him to the mount where he appeared with Christ simply said to the devil the Lord rebuke thee tremendous things were happening weren't they so that that scene could take place and Moses had been brought there and Elijah had been brought there and the Lord was there and the scripture tells us what they discussed they spake about says the authorized version they spake about the death that he should accomplish and you know for many brethren have mentioned it that really it should be they discussed the exodus that he would accomplish but many concentrate on this idea that they were speaking about the Lord's own exodus his personal exodus from this world with respect I don't think that is the case on the mount these men discuss the exodus that would be fulfilled in Christ it was never fulfilled in Moses he let them out but he never took them in Elijah was used of God for recovery in those dark days when Baal worship covered the land but he could never take them in but this man who stood with them this man would accomplish the exodus that began at Passover and would see one day the people of God fully restored and brought into their inheritance they discussed the exodus that would be accomplished in him the one who would not only bring them out but bring them in and that's what the Lord Jesus is looking forward to here in Luke chapter 22 
the fact that it is a memorial shows that, that God had given to the nation of Israel for all those centuries the responsibility of bearing a memorial something which could be observed by an ungodly world they were bearing a memorial to the redeeming power of God the annual Passover feast though it was something expressly for the Jewish nation there is hardly if any a nation in the world certainly the nations round about them who were not aware of the fact that this was a very special memorial for Israel and even as the nations round about observed the nation keeping this and their other set feasts of course of Leviticus chapter 23 when they saw the nation keeping these set feasts they, it was constantly reminding these ungodly Gentile nations that this was a people in touch with the living God it was a memorial it was like you erected you have some fine and great memorials erected in your country uh, and they're erected to commemorate different men and different events and things like this well the Passover was like a spiritual memorial and every time it was kept there was a declaration made to Gentile nations round about as to the redeeming power of Jehovah the God of Israel and the Lord looks forward to a day when Israel in the millennial earth will also bear memorial to the redeeming power of God when will that be? well we've said it will be in the millennial reign of Christ but if you were to read through Ezekiel's prophecy I know it's a bit of a struggle sometimes but put up with it, persevere and especially when you get to chapter 40 and then you read from chapter 40 onwards you find that Ezekiel is describing a temple but he's also describing a city they're one and the same place it's the temple city it's Zion of Psalm number 48 and in that temple city in a day to come all the Old Testament sacrifices are going to be reinstituted and it's a puzzle to many isn't it because sensibly they look at the Hebrew epistle and they read that, uh, that Christ has appeared once in the end of the age to put away the sin question by the sacrifice of himself surely the Hebrew epistle teaches that in the sacrifice of Christ all those Old Testament sacrifices were done away with in their totality absolutely true so why then will they be reinstituted in a future day not only the sweet savour offerings we could maybe have understood that the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering but the offerings for sin, the sin offering, the trespass offering they're going to be offered again in a future day but why? well one thing's for sure it won't be for the expiation of sin that has been dealt with fully in Christ why will they all be reinstituted? they will be reinstituted as a perpetual national memorial to the greatness of the work of Christ Israel for the first time in their experience as a nation this is still future Israel for the first time in their national experience will be intelligent as to what those sacrifices meant the godliest of priests who ministered at, those, at that altar in the past the godliest of priests had no understanding of how that sacrifice spoke of Christ 
He had no understanding of how they all together blended into a beautiful portrayal of the fullness of the work of the Lord Jesus. They had no clue about it at all. But in that day they'll be intelligent. In that day they will know. For in that day they will have looked at him as he returns in glory and they will say, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement with a view to our peace was upon him and by his stripe we are healed and the nation will be intelligent as to everything that meant. And those born in the millennium will still be born with a sinful nature. There will be an everlasting gospel and it will be like a glorious color 3D reenactment as Israel in that temple city, a nation of priests, brings all those sacrifices back not not to make expiation for sin they're not looking forward anymore with those sacrifices they'll be looking back they'll be looking back intelligently they will be a memorial and that's why they're done so Israel had a memorial in the past it was the Passover they will have memorial responsibility in the future when that glorious millennial temple is there but Israel is about to reject Christ. Well, they have not about to. They have done. And they're about to crucify him. So what the Lord is instructing them, and why these men are referred to here as apostles, they don't know that they're wearing, if I might use the modern day expression, they don't know they're wearing two hats. They are, they are an example of the remnant of Israel. Godly followers of the word of God they have, they have confessed that Christ is the son of God remember that great confession of Peter on their behalf in Matthew chapter 16 whom do men say that I the son of man am thou art the Christ the son of the living God so, so they're representative of a godly remnant of the nation these aren't rejecting Christ they acknowledge him but what they don't know at this stage is that they're wearing another hat and it's why they're referred to here as apostles. Because Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to teach that the New Testament prophets and the apostles were foundational members of the church. At this stage, these men didn't know about a church age. When they sat with the Lord in the upper room, they didn't know that the church was going to come into being. It was still in mystery. But they didn't know also that they were going to be foundational members of it. It was only after events had taken place, and particularly after the Spirit of God had come, consequent upon the Lord's glorification, when the Spirit of God came in Acts chapter 2, and the church age began to unfold, then through Paul, doctrine came that brought these things back to their minds. And Paul, referring back to this occasion, now brings to them the New Testament doctrine, and he says, For as often as ye eat this bread, and ye drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. What's he saying? He's saying memorial responsibility has been removed from the nation because of their rebellion and rejection of Christ. They've lost that privilege and responsibility. And that privilege and responsibility has been given to the church. So that today, it's not the Passover we're commemorating. Not Exodus 12. It's that of which the Passover spake. 
the sacrifice of Christ. And as oft as ye eat this bread and ye drink this cup, ye do proclaim the death of him who is Lord till he come. It's temporary. And it's temporary because when the church age is complete, then Israel will be dealt with and Israel will be restored as a nation and memorial responsibility taken away from them in Luke 22 is going to be restored to them for a future day. God is not going to be without a witness. Today though, as we remember the Lord in the way that we have this morning, it's not that we are bearing a public memorial so that the Gentile nations round about may understand. Paul teaches again to the Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers might be made known by means of the church the manifold wisdom of God. When we broke bread this morning, we didn't come to break bread lest we forget. You understand that? It's not a case if we don't remember the Lord week by week we're going to forget it. That's never envisaged in scripture. Men raise their war memorials and they inscribe on them, at least in our country they do, lest we forget. But that's not the purpose of what we do. In fact, it's the opposite. It's because we do not forget that week by week we erect a fresh memorial. It's a testimony to the redeeming power of God. It's a testimony to the saving work of Christ. And we erect that fresh memorial week by week. But in whose gaze do we do it? The Lord deliberately instituted this in an upper room. He took them above street level. He took them above the level of this world. He didn't invite the multitudes in. He didn't inaugurate this on a hillside somewhere or at the seaside. He took his own privately into the upper room. And in the privacy of the presence and the sanctuary of God this morning, we would not exclude men and women who are not saved. We would welcome them to come and sit and observe what is going on. But they're not the primary audience. Paul says, as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do proclaim the death of him who is Lord. Who are we proclaiming it to? Not the world. But to those vast arrays of angelic intelligences who've witnessed all the great crises of time since, since time and sin began. And those same angelic intelligences have witnessed the Son of God come into the world to save sinners. And they have stood there and formed a celestial guard of honor as a man was received back into heaven. The first man ever to be in heaven. And Christ took manhood into glory. And angels in all the vastness of their power and in all that they have witnessed over the course of time, they stood to one side in holy awe as they watched a man taken to the pinnacle of heaven's glory why did God do this why did God do this and Paul says it's now to the intent that those principalities and powers will learn by means of the church the manifold wisdom of God
We might not have been aware of it this morning, it might not have crossed our minds, but as we bowed quietly and simply to remember the Lord Jesus around those appointed emblems, we were under the gaze of angelic beings. And they were observing by our godly order. How do they know you're a Christian? How do they know you're a Christian? You see, the men of the world, they would know that you were a Christian by confession of mouth and by the life that you live. How do angels know? Well, in a church age where, unlike Judaism, which had everything outward, everything that could be touched and seen and smelt and this, Christianity has none of those outward forms. There are only three things that are designed to be observed. The first is baptism. A symbol of death, burial and resurrection. The only created beings who witnessed the death, burial and resurrection of Christ were angels. And symbolically, when you were baptized, they see, they identify you now as someone who acknowledges Christ as Lord. But when you break bread and they watch that, they see people proclaiming Christ as Lord. Now you can't proclaim a Lord you haven't acknowledged. So there's a reason why unbaptized believers don't break bread. There's a progression there. I acknowledge him as Lord in my baptism. With the uncovered head of the man and the covered head of the woman, we acknowledge the headship of Christ. We're told expressly in 1 Corinthians 11, for this cause ought the woman to have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels they're watching. And it's to them we make that proclamation. They see in this rebellious world of men, the world that crucified the Lord of life and glory. They see here and there companies of men and women who've acknowledged Christ in baptism and who are now proclaiming Christ in the breaking of bread. And by that means God is instructing them as to the different facets, the glorious facets of his own wisdom. There's a tremendous dignity to it all, isn't it? May God help us to, in our own thinking, lift what we do far above the ritual and the mere ecclesiastical ways of men. This isn't communion. It isn't the Eucharist. It's believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Solemnly, with great privilege, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord till he comes. May God bless his word.